So I think I probably know the answer uh, to this, but uh, raise your hand in here if you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's, that's what I fear, probably most everybody. Uh, you remember when Dorothy wakes up after the tornado in Oz, uh, she says to her little dog, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Uh, think, I mean, think about what happens, right? She gets whacked in the head, uh, knocked out, and when she wakes up, she's in a strange uh, land with strange people, strange customs. Everything is so different from what she was used to. And on top of that, someone wicked was out to get her. It kind of uh, freaked her out a bit. I mean, everything was so weird, except for maybe, you know, the guy's giving her a great big lollipop. That was probably okay. But everything else kind of freaked her out. What happened to Kansas? What happened to everything she thought was normal? Got to wonder if maybe Daniel wasn't feeling a bit the same way. Carted off to Babylon. One moment he's at home and everything is normal. And now he's in a strange land, strange customs, strange things going on, and wickedness all around him. Maybe, maybe you felt a little bit the same way about America. What used to be seems to no longer be there. It's almost like now we're living in a strange land where the culture is very different than it used to be. People do strange things, believe strange things, and often it feels like someone wicked is out to get us. And the truth is, we're no longer living in the America that used to be, the America of our memories, the America of our dreams, right? Uh, we're dwelling in Babylon, a, a land of false gods and sinful passions. Now, fortunately, uh, Daniel's gone on before us, and he has shown us how we can live in Babylon a life of character and conviction. So if you haven't already done so, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Follow along as I read verses 3 and 4 to get us started this morning. Daniel chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Youths in whom there was no defect and who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Father God, again, we, we're uh, looking to you as we look into your word to be the one who uh, teaches us this morning, to be the one who... Uh, works in our hearts and our lives according to your will. And so, God, we just pray that you would give us minds to see, spiritual eyes, spiritual ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, for those that weren't uh, here last Sunday, uh, here's the basic setting. Judah, which is also now called Israel since the, the northern kingdom that we talked about has been destroyed and carted off a about a hundred years earlier, um, they, uh, through their persistent disobedience and rebellion, have come under God's judgment, and God gave them lots of warnings, lots of opportunities to repent, but they never did, and as a result, what God had uh, uh, foretold 
now came upon them, the judgment of God in the form of being uh, taken over by another country, uh, Babylon. And uh, in the first incursion, Babylon came a, a number of times. In the first incursion, they, they took over uh, the government. They took over the land and uh, um, operations of things. But they didn't destroy the place because they wanted to leave a functioning country so that that country could then uh, make money and send them large yearly tributes, taxes. Uh, but they were the ones that were in control. And uh, one of the things they did uh, to show their domination was they carted off to Babylon the, the cream of the crop of all the young uh, people. Uh, and that's what verse 3 was talking about when it says that Nebuchadnezzar de- demanded to seize some of <clears throat> the sons of Israel, including some of the, the uh, royal family and the nobles. Uh, the king left a functioning country in Israel, but he crippled it by, by taking the next generation of leaders from them. And, and he took the best of the best. That's what verse 4 was talking about. Uh, he, he wanted the finest physical specimens, healthy and, and good-looking guys, but they also had to be smarter than your average bear. The, these uh, were, were the 4.0 students. He wanted the best. Again, again, he wanted them for his benefit there in Babylon, but also to cripple the nation of Israel that he was leaving behind. And um, the uh, word youth, when it says he took some of the youths, that's really kind of a broad word um, in Hebrew. It could mean anywhere from about 13, to, well, literally up to 30 was still considered a youth. But almost always it, it generally referred to younger teens, and uh, in this case, you would think specifically younger teens because those younger minds are the ones that Nebuchadnezzar would have wanted, easier to mold and shape and, and, and trade. And um, that's what he took and, and um, said that they were going to be used um, uh, for Babylon's purposes. So they were going to be trained in all the uh, literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Uh, literature is um, a broad term that, that refers to any branch of learning. So it would have included uh, history, math, science, astronomy, but also things like astrology because the superstitions and the pagan beliefs of Babylon would have also been part of this curriculum. And in verse 5, we find out that they would be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to... Uh, enter the king's personal service. So basically, these guys had been captured, carted off to a foreign land, and then forced to take uh, a, uh, work towards a college degree in order then to work for the king himself. And, and it's at this point that we're introduced to four key young men. And, and, and remember, uh, when I say young, we're probably talking about 15-year-old give or take uh, a couple years here, 15-year-old kids. And uh, verse 6 says this, Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So just stop for just a minute and, and try to think of, of how these guys m- might have felt. You're a teenager. You've just been violently ripped away from everything you knew and everything you cared about. Your family is gone. I mean, they, they may or may not still be alive. You, you might not even know whether they're still alive, but whether they are or not, you're pretty sure you'll never see them again. 
and you're in a place where you can't understand a word that's said uh, around you. Uh, you've got armed guards uh, over you. Um, they're pushing you here and there, watching your every move. Everything looks different, smells different, and you know everything is different for the rest of your life. So imagine how they felt. Terrified, lonely, angry, all those things. And now uh, they're being brought in before the king and, and they're being brought in with, with the foundations of their life completely crumbled under their feet. And when they're called in to this king, this king who just defeated their country and, and took them over, they don't know what's going on. They don't know whether they're going to live or die or be tortured. They don't know what purpose is happening. That's the position these guys are in. But as they're there, called before the king, they find out what the king's plan is. Uh, this whole training regime that he's talked about. He's, he, he's going to train them so that they can serve in his court. They're going to be working for their oppressor, the, the oppressor who would kill them in a second if, he disple uh, if you displeased him in any way whatsoever. That was the position these guys were in. And the first step that Nebuchadnezzar was going to use to, to indoctrinate them into the ways of Babylon before even the training and the teaching starts was to change their name. Look at verse 7. Then the commander of the officials signed new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. What is the purpose of that, right? What's the big deal of that? Well, it's actually twofold. And both of the things were part of that purpose of driving a wedge, of separating them between what used to be their old life and what is true now. Your, your name is your identity, right? I mean, it, it connects you to your parents who gave you that name it, it, it identifies you as belonging to a, a certain family. It helps you be able to say, this is who I am. Your whole heritage is, is tied up in your name. And Babylon was trying to rob them of that. But second, like all good Jewish parents, these names were important because they reminded them of the God of Israel. The, their names were pictures of the character and the greatness of God. And so none of that would be tolerated in Babylon. Daniel means God is my judge. And his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, who was one of the false gods of Babylon. Bel protects the king. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. But Shadrach means command of Aku, Aku being another one of Babylonian gods. Mishael, which is a form of Michael, by the way, if you know anybody named Michael, means who is like the Lord. But his name was changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And finally, Azariah means the Lord is my helper. But Abednego means servant of Nego or Nebo. Again, another of the pantheon. They had, Babylonians were polytheistic. They had many gods. 
And these young men were given these new names to further erase who they once were and try to establish who Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to be, both in identity and in religious allegiances. And it was a tactic that his father, Nabopolassar, and now his son Nebuchadnezzar, had been using for years. As they'd been invading countries, they would bring in the cream of the crop, and their whole plan was to assimilate them into the life and culture and structure of Babylon. And um, it had been working very well for them with all these other countries they had taken over, and that was their plan now with the Jewish captives as well. And and you know what? You have to kind of wonder if it didn't work, at least fairly well, on most of the captives. I mean, notice that verse 6 begins with the words, now among them, okay? The them was all the captives uh, of Judah, all the cream of the crop that had been taken from Israel. And and there had to be a bunch of them. Again, Nebuchadnezzar was crippling the country. And, And so he took all these young men away from them. Not only would that reduce any army that, that uh, Israel might try to mount for a rebellion, but it took away their leaders, the, the leaders of the next generation in this type of stuff. And, and out of all this big group, only four are singled out and named. Uh, the rest of the captives, we never get their names. We never hear about them again. Why do you think that is? Well, we, we can't you know, say for absolute certain because the Bible doesn't tell us, but, but I have to wonder if it's not because for the most part they capitulated to the pressures to assimilate. They, they gave in to the way of the world and therefore lost their opportunity to become part of God's story. Yeah, I mean, remember that every book of the Bible is ultimately uh, about God. So sure, Daniel tells us about some significant events in Daniel's life, but it's really the story of God and what God was doing in Daniel and through Daniel and this type of thing. And people who, who capitulate, people who give in, who live like the world, they're not highlighted in God's story. And we understand, I hope we all understand, that God's story is still going on today, right? I mean, someone cleverly noted and I'm sure you've probably all heard this before, that history is really his story. That, that's what history is, right? And, and uh, his story is still going on. He's still writing it. And, and, and yeah, we'll never show up in a book of the Bible. The Bible's uh, completed. Uh, but the question still remains. Will we be part of the among them, that nameless big group? Or will we stand out like Daniel? And his friends. What, what made the difference for them? Why were they singled out? Why did Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah uh, get their names printed when nobody else did? Well, that's what the rest of chapter 1 is uh, telling us about. So uh, l- let's take a look there. It's, we find out that the difference was they stood by their convictions. Now, according to the dictionary, a conviction is a firm belief. 
a belief that is held to deeply and unswervingly. Uh, Someone once said that a conviction is a belief with boots on, boots ready to march, ready to fight, ready to die. That's what a conviction is. So how'd this work out for them? Well, Earlier, when the, when the captives were given their instructions uh, about what they were going to be doing, being trained in the literature and going into the king's service and all that, I, I left out one detail that was said there. Uh, uh, it says in, in verse 5, The king appointed for them a daily ration from among the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank. Now, normally, you would think that would be kind of good news for a teenage boy, right? I mean, other captives might be eating gruel, But man, we're getting a feast, all the food we can want here, uh, all the chow that that we can put away. The king wanted these guys, since he was going to be trained, they were going to be trained to be in his service. He wanted them at the peak, at the top of of their game. And, And so he gave them the best of their food. Plus, you know, it never hurts when you've taken people captive. Uh, to give them something good to let them know, hey, if you do things my way and, and don't resist and give in to the assimilation, hey, I, I'm going to take care of you and things are going to be good. So it's like a bribe as well. And, and, and so he was giving them the good food, but uh, uh, trying to convince them that they, they, they'd be happy uh, following him. But look at verse 8. It says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. See, there, there was one major problem in all of this for Daniel, and, and that problem was that the meat and, and the wine that came from the king's provision would have all been sacrificed to the idols of Babylon. Uh, the veggies, not so much, right? I, I mean, nobody goes to, you know, an idol. Like Marduk, Marduk was the, the number one uh, God of the Babylonians. Nobody goes to Marduk and says, Oh, great and mighty Marduk, here's this carrot I dug up for you. Uh, that didn't happen. But, but, the, but the, the meat and, and the wine, uh, that's another story. That was always sacrificed to the idols. And here's the rub. It's not just the fact that it was sacrificed to them, but it was what it meant. Uh, by eating that food, every partaker would have been recognizing the validity of that idol as a god. Eating was a way of honoring who, what that god stood for, which, of course, is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had in mind, further separation from the old ways at home. And that's exactly why Daniel wouldn't do it. It, it, it would defile him. It, it would be rebelling against his god. It would be dishonoring to the Lord that he served. You know, if it was just a matter of this whole idea of, you know, it, the foods weren't kosher and didn't meet the, the quality control standards of, of a normal Jewish is, uh, meal, Daniel could have gotten around that because he could have just gone to the table and, and picked and chose what he was going to eat and, and this kind of stuff. But there's no way around the foods sacrificed to the idols. So Daniel... And his three friends said no. But notice that they didn't, you know, stage some major protest. They didn't start a a boycott against the king and his uh, food on his table. They didn't go on a hunger strike until they got their way. Instead, they did a very curious thing. They politely and diplomatically asked for permission to eat something else. 
I mean, that, that's what they did. Look at the rest of verse 8. So he sought, Daniel sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And the text goes on as you read it uh, to tell us that the commander actually felt compassion for Daniel. He, 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 he was connected. He, he, he appreciated what Daniel had to say, but he still said no. <laughs> he, he still denied Daniel's request because he was afraid. I mean, he, he was afraid of, of Nebuchadnezzar because he's the guy in charge of them all. And if Daniel and these friends of his showed up looking haggard and pale and weak when he was supposed to be making sure they were well-fed and, and taken care of, the king could take his head. And he said, I'm not chancing that. Sorry, I'm not going to do that. And, and so he told Daniel, no. Now, Daniel could have given up at that point, right? He said, well, I tried my best and I guess there's no luck. But he didn't do that. Uh, and convictions work that way. Convictions compel you to keep going. So what he did was he then went to his immediate supervisor, the guy who was actually going to be bringing the food to them every day. And, and when he went to him, he proposed a test. He said, hey, just, just bring us vegetables and water for 10 days. Do it for 10 days, and then, and then check us out at the end of those 10 days. At the end of that time, you can deal with your servants according to what you see. And again, he wasn't making any demands. He, he was just asking for an opportunity. And, and this guy, well, he, he agreed to, to give him that opportunity to do that. And verse 15 says, At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Right? They, they looked great. They got fat eating vegetables, which, which is why I'm trying to cut back a little bit myself while watching my figure. Uh, uh, more carrots? Oh, no, I better not. I, I'm, I'm watching out here. Okay, joking. They, they, the test worked because God was working, right? And because the test worked, they were allowed then for the entire three years of that training period to eat just the vegetables and water, so they wouldn't uh, defile themselves. So now the, the question is, well, that's a great story, but w what does that mean for us? I mean, chances are pretty good that we're not going to get deported to a foreign country, forced into an educational system there to learn their ways and their customs, and then asked to eat food that had been uh, sacrificed to idol. You know, most likely that's not going to happen to us, but as I mentioned at the very beginning, that really doesn't have to happen to us because we're already living in the land of Babylon, right? You know, figuratively speaking. We, we live in a culture that at best pushes back against God and His ways and at worst openly defies them. We, we live in, in, in a land that is constantly giving us opportunities to compromise or, or to discard our, our moral convictions in favor of the feast that this world has to offer. So how do we stand up and stand out like Daniel? How do we get convictions like that to live by? Well, the, the passage gives us uh, uh, a few ideas, a few answers from this text. First of all, we have to understand that a, that a conviction, something like Daniel was holding here to, that's something you choose. It's not something that comes from how you feel. 
And, and I, I think uh, we all agree that feelings, uh, you know, they, they change quickly and, and, and greatly influenced by the circumstances around us. Uh, many a person, you know, has made a, a, a statement out of their feelings and then was unable to hold to that when circumstances changed or other things went on. Uh, feelings, they lie to us all the time. You ever had your feelings lie to you? Yeah, they, they lie to you all the time. Feelings will tell us that something is all right when we already know in our mind that it's wrong. But you know, in the middle of a, a pressure-packed situation or some highly emotional circumstances, what's wrong might feel right or okay. So you can't go by feelings. A conviction, a true conviction, it might produce strong feelings in you, but it never comes from those feelings. You, you have to choose a conviction. Look at verse 8 again. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. He made up his mind. He, he chose a course of action. That phrase literally means he set it upon his heart uh, and could be translated as he purposed in his heart. A conviction is something that you set deep within yourself that will not be changed by the circumstances surrounding you. And he didn't just, you know, come up with this conviction on his own, like, you know, oh, well, what do I want to stand for? What do I want to believe? It came from the teachings of the Word of God, right? This, this was a command that he had been taught from childhood, a command from God, but he chose it, accepted it as his own. And the truth is, the Bible is what gives us the convictions we need to have in order to live spiritually successful lives in this world. It tells us what is right and wrong, and we have to then choose that for ourselves. It's not enough just to have heard it, uh, to, to, to know it, or even to say you believe it. There's something... I think is important we should notice from this text as you read it. And, and I would encourage all of you, go home this afternoon and, and read chapter 1 of Daniel. So you get this whole story, all the details that I don't have time to, to pass out uh, with you this morning. But, but um, notice as you're reading through there, it says Daniel uh, uh, was making up his mind. And Daniel went to the overseer. And Daniel chose this kind of stuff. But then a little later on, we read that Daniel plus... Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did these things. Well, where did those three guys come in when it was Daniel doing all these things? Well, I, I have an idea. And again, the, the Bible doesn't tell us, so this is just my guess. You can take this part, uh, take it or leave it if you want. But here's what I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking that after the orientation meeting, you know, when they're standing before the king and they're told this is what all is going to happen here and you're going to get educated and all that kind of stuff, and once they're herded back to their dormitories, Daniel gathered the rest of the Jews together and said, man, guys, we, we can't do that. You know that, that, that meat and that wine, that's been sacrificed to Marduk and Aku and Bel and, and all their other false gods. We can't recognize any of those idols as having any validity. And all of those Jews, 
every one of them that was deported from Israel and brought there, this again, cream of the crop, they would have known, they would have heard the previous teachings from God's word. They would have had a belief that to eat that food would be wrong. They would have been taught that since their childhood. But apparently, only three others held it as a conviction and said, you know what, you're right, no matter what, we're not going to do this. And, And here's the deal. When you live by biblical convictions, you're making yourself a part of a fairly small company. Even many people who who should know better won't stand by a certain belief when push comes to shove. And if you're paying attention to what's going on in the churches in America today, you see that that's happening all over this country. Only those who choose convictions will be able to stand. So have you made up your mind? Have you purposed in your heart that whatever God says, that's what I'm going to stand by? That's what I'll hold? I don't care what the circumstances are around me. I'm going to follow what God says. See, a true conviction is not something you just know or heard or feel, but something you choose to stand on, which leads us to a second point about convictions. A real conviction is excuse-proof. Daniel had plenty of excuses that he could have used on this issue of the meat, right? Everybody else was doing it. Isn't that a great excuse? We we use that one all the time. Everybody else is doing uh, The temple and everything he learned, his whole way of life, uh, that's a long ways away. That's, that's in the past. He's in a, he's in a new place now. Who's, who's going to know? There's another great excuse, isn't it? Who's going to know? We're, we're capped up, carted off captives here. Who's going to tell him to stop? His parents are gone. He's a captive. He just has to do what he's told. Sounds like a reasonable excuse, doesn't it? I mean, he's in no position to defy the king. It's not his fault that he's there. He might as well just make the best of it. It's just a little thing right now. Why try to make big waves over meat? I mean, who knows what will happen? This is scary. You know, uh, Maybe he can just compromise a little bit here at the beginning and then afterwards, after he knows what's going on and, you know, and after he's gotten a good position and, and things are kind of settled down, well, then maybe he can try to change back and, 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 and stand by more of those convictions. It's amazing how many excuses our minds can come up with, isn't it? And if you haven't chosen your convictions in advance then I can guarantee you that Satan will bring all kinds of reasonable-sounding excuses to your mind. I mean, that's the whole point about excuses, right? They sound reasonable when the pressure's on. But a true conviction gives no leeway, no quarter for any excuses. And that brings us to a third truth we need to know if we're going to live by convictions. That is, if you're going to live by conviction, you have to decide up front 
you're willing to suffer the consequences. Daniel knew that there could be severe consequences just for making his request, right? I mean, he tried to do it in the best, the wisest, the most gracious, winsome way that he could, but he knew it could still cost him his life or at the very least some kind of punishment. And if you're not willing to pay the price, then it's not really a conviction. There's a a powerful line at the end of verse 13. After proposing that 10-day test, uh, Daniel told the supervisor, then bring us out and evaluate us. Uh, And he says, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel knew at that point he had done everything he could to escape uh, the, the circumstances of trying to force him to compromise his conviction. And if this test failed, then the supervisor would have to do whatever he had to do. And Daniel... And already made it clear he wasn't going to eat the king's choice food. So who knows what those consequences would have been. We can assume that they wouldn't have been pleasant. But he was ready to bear up to any of the penalties to stand by his convictions. You know, it's one thing to be able to say, oh, I'm going to live by what the Bible says in this world. It's another thing to be willing to pay the price for them. And as this world turns more and more into Babylon, we as Christians can expect greater difficulties, tougher pushback, and severe punishments for standing by our convictions. So are you ready to be a Daniel? One last thing, and this is what gives us hope. When we choose to stand by biblical convictions, we can know that the grace of God is going to be at work on our behalf. I mean, when you go back and you read Daniel uh, this afternoon, read chapter 1, pay attention to every place where it says the Lord gave or God granted or these types of things. And that phrase reminds us that behind all these human interactions, behind the details of the story, God was at work. As Daniel stood by those biblical convictions, it says God granted him favor. And we, say, we, we serve the same God today that Daniel was serving. God will be at work when we stand according to our convictions. Now, understand, that doesn't mean that everything's going to come out roses and, and peach pie, right? Um, I just made up the peach pie part because I like peach pie. But, but it, 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 it means sometimes there will be consequences, but he'll give you the grace to stand through them. And God will be at work. And Daniel was rewarded for that. And will be rewarded too. Now, I understand that sometimes that reward might come presently, earthly, as it did to Daniel, or it might be something that comes in eternity. But God is faithful. God is the one who allows us to stand by these convictions because God is the one that's at work. So let me ask you again. Are you ready? to be a Daniel. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful that we have this account of Daniel that 
we can gain insight and strength from, but God, we know it is only you and your spirit which will allow us to stand bold and faithful under conviction as Daniel and his three friends did. God, we pray that, I pray that myself, that each person here would choose to hold fast to your word. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the culture around us, so that we can be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.